what would you do if you discovered a plane crash? Would your answer be different if the plane you found contained 6,000 pounds of marijuana? In 1977, some people had to make that decision. My name is Jeff Fargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Welcome to Episode 1 of the High Adventure Podcast. I'm Jeff Fargin, and I want to thank you for listening. I know you have a lot of podcast choices, so I appreciate you stopping by here and spending a little time with us. This season, we're going to explore the 1977 Yosemite plane crash. There have been dozens of plane crashes in Yosemite over the years, and we'll touch on some of those. But the crash we're concentrating on this season was carrying 6,000 pounds of high-grade marijuana. It's sometimes called the Yosemite pot plane crash. They call it Lodestar Lightning. Lots of names for it. During the season, we're going to dive deep into the facts and legends and rumors and myths that still surround the crash. Let's go back a bit. December 2nd, 1976. An ex-Vietnam War pilot named John Gliske and his co-pilot Jeff Nelson are sitting on a beach runway in Mexico. Their plane's being loaded with about three tons of high-grade Mexican red hair marijuana. This is the second run of the day, so it's all pretty routine plane was to fly north along the California coast. It's going to stay low to avoid the DEA and other watchful eyes. Most likely they're flying by following highways and looking for ground landmarks. Flying up the coast west of San Luis Obispo and north of Morro Bay, they'd spot San Simeon, which is the iconic Hearst Mansion. And they'll turn right there and go inland and follow Highway 41 over Fresno into the Sierras. Their first destination of the flight was going to be a desert outside of Reno. So flying over the Sierras, they most likely would have been looking for Highway 395 that goes north and south up the east side of the Sierras, and they would turn left and head right into Reno. But something happened in the mountains near Lower Merced Pass. There's a small lake called Lower Merced Pass Lake, and this time of year it's frozen. The lake's only about six acres, so it's not a huge body of water, but it's pretty remote, not often visited during the year, pretty hard to find unless you're really looking for it. About a quarter mile before the lake, and as the plane is cresting the summit or the pass, an engine fell off. Then the plane somehow lost a wing and then crashed nose first through the ice of the Lower Merced Pass Lake. Six weeks later, late January 77, the crash was found by some hikers, and it was reported to the government agencies. Those agencies descended on the crash and began an investigation, but then abandoned the crash site. Word of the crash got out, and some Yosemite employees and a group of resident rock climbers made their way to the crash site. Those climbers carried thousands of pounds of weed from that remote region of Yosemite back to Yosemite Valley. A lot of it was smoked, and some of it went down to Southern California, and some went to the Bay Area and was sold. But before we get to the crash itself, let's take a look at the mid-1970s and what was happening in the country, and specifically Yosemite, to help set the backdrop for this story. The Gregorian calendar said it was 1977. That's the calendar we go by. The Buddhist calendar logs it in at 2521, and it was 1355 in Iranian and 1969 on the Ethiopian calendars. Jimmy Carter was president. Leonid Brezhnev was president of the Soviet Union. Elvis, Bing Crosby, Groucho Marx, and Charlie Chaplin died in 1977. Kanye West, John Oliver, Tom Brady, and Donald Trump Jr. were born in 1977. Rocky won the Oscar for Best Picture, and Star Wars and Saturday Night Fever dominated the box office. 
On TV, Roots was a huge television event and launched the concept of the miniseries. On weekly TV, we had Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and MASH, which were the top of the ratings of that time. Musically, the Eagles, Hotel California, won the Grammy for Record of the Year. Rod Stewart topped the charts with Tonight's the Night, and the Sex Pistols released their album, Nevermind the Bullocks, which launched the punk scene both in Europe and in the U.S. The Apple II computer went on sale, and Atari released a video computer system. The 1970s have been called the 60s without a purpose. In many ways, that's accurate, I think. Uh, the Vietnam War and Watergate were behind us. Socially, there wasn't much to engage us. No war protests. Nixon was successfully pushed out of office, and we were decades away from the onslaught of social media and mobile devices and video games. And you still had to get out of your chair and walk across the room to change the channel. And even then, you had three networks and a couple local stations. That was it. We were heading unapologetically into the disco era, which, good or bad, like it or not, it was a fact. 1977, we were starting to see discos with lighted up floors and really trying to mimic the Saturday Night Fever thing, and that was a, a big deal in the 70s. Even the U.S. itself was much different in 1977. The population was 216 million. Gas was 79 cents a gallon. The average price for a new house was $49,000. Average income was about 15000 and the average rent was about 214 bucks a month. The Yankees won the World Series over the Dodgers, and Reggie Jackson was given the nickname Mr. October, and the Oakland Raiders won the Super Bowl. A.J. Foyt won the Indy 500. Drugs were still a major topic of interest and discussion in the mid-'70s. Government policies, though, had changed a little bit. They were urging law enforcement organizations to de-emphasize marijuana and cocaine investigations and crack down on heroin distribution. Because of the decreased attention to weed and coke, many Americans thought we were free to use both drugs. The unintended consequence was that marijuana and cocaine use escalated. In the mid-1970s, more than 26 million people used some type of illegal drug recreationally. One result of the increased use and interest in drugs in the U.S. was the birth of the Mexican and South American drug cartels. At that time, as it is today, marijuana continues to be a Schedule I drug, as classified by the DEA. The definition of a Schedule I drug, according to the DEA, is, and I quote, Schedule I drugs are those that have the following characteristics according to the United States Drug Enforcement Agency. The drug or other substance has a high potential for abuse. The drug or other substance has no currently accepted medical treatment in the U.S. And number three, it has a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision, which seems kind of convoluted and open to some kind of interpretation. In the mid-1970s, the Vietnam War was a fairly recent memory, and those who came home were trying to find their way. John Gliske used his pilot experience to smuggle drugs. It seemed like easy money and even easier when flying a retrofitted, luxurious twin-engine plane that was called a Howard 500. Now, this plane was often thought to have been a Lodestar, um, which is where the nickname for the weed became Lodestar Lightning, but it wasn't. It was a Howard 500, and we'll talk in later episodes about the plane exactly and why it was so specifically suited for smuggling drugs, weed in particular in this case. After news of the crash hit the valley, the residents and a lot of the resident climbing community um, started a kind of a stealth exodus out of Yosemite Valley and back into the remote wilderness to investigate the rumors of the crash and, if it was in fact true, to reap the harvest. That's exactly what happened. Transporting the weed was difficult, 
using it was easy and selling it was even easier. But these dirt poor climbers became entrepreneurs. Outcasts were making dinner reservations and eating at Yosemite's finest restaurants. New cars, trucks drove into the valley and parked where one time their old broken bikes and their old climbing shoes once sat. Some who were involved in the harvest of the marijuana from the plane financed climbing trips to the Himalayan Patagonia. And those trips by experienced but previously poor Yosemite climbers brought a boldness with some serious ambition to those areas and new routes were developed and climbed and changed those areas. We'll be right back after this brief message. I assume you're listening to this podcast because you enjoy a good adventure story. Along with the High Adventure podcast, Accidental Productions also produces the Accidental podcast that features interviews with rock climbers and adventurers from around the world. We've also produced a number of films as well as the web series El Cap Bridge, featuring discussions with the famous and not-so-famous climbers that hang out in what's called the center of the climbing universe. Our feature film, Assault in El Capitan, takes you up on the second ascent of Wings of Steel, with legendary big wall climber Ammon McNeely as he tries to solve the mystery of the most controversial climb in Yosemite history. Assault on El Capitan is available on streaming services everywhere and is free on Amazon Prime. We'll soon be opening our online store where you'll find several of our other films, podcasts, and web series, as well as the typical podcast merch. Stay tuned for the date of our grand opening. Now back to the show. Yosemite was very different in 1977. Some people today believe Yosemite is a natural Disneyland where regardless of the perceived danger, they're completely safe. People die in Yosemite each year from things that would never kill them at Disneyland, selfie being one way. Stepping off cliffs and waterfalls while trying to get that perfect selfie is not unknown or uncommon in Yosemite, but 1977 was long before the term selfie was coined. Yosemite is nearly 750,000 acres. That's 1170 square miles and that makes the park larger than the state of Rhode Island. The park has 214 miles of paved roads and 800 miles of hiking trails. And Yosemite Valley is a piece of the large park. What most people actually call Yosemite is really just Yosemite Valley. The valley is where you see the waterfalls, where you see Half Dome, where you see El Capitan, but the valley is really about 7 miles long and a mile wide. It's where the Iwani Hotel and Curry Village and the Yosemite Lodge and the condensing of all the tourist traffic generally happens in Yosemite Valley. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln signed the bill creating the Yosemite Grant, which gave the land to the state of California, and they formed Yosemite State Park. In 1890, Congress passed a bill creating Yosemite National Park, but California retained control of Yosemite Valley, probably because of potential tourist trade. There was already a town in there. There was a, hotels in there. There was already stuff starting to develop in the valley. And clearly, California didn't want to quite give that up. But in 1906, President Teddy Roosevelt, after visiting Yosemite, signed a bill that took back the valley and added it back into the national park. So in 1906, Yosemite had a total of 5,414 visitors. Last year, that number was over 4 million the highest point in the park is Mount Lyle at 13,000 feet. The lowest point is in Yosemite Valley at around 2,100 feet, between 2,100 and 4,000, depending on where you measure. Dope Lake sits at an elevation of about 8,500 feet. It's a very difficult 12-mile hike, approximately 12 miles, from the valley back to this tiny little six-acre lake that if you're not sure where you're going, you'll walk right past it and not even see it. 
technical rock climbing in Yosemite has been a major activity in the park since the 30s when the Sierra Club rock climbing section really sort of embraced Yosemite and embraced the adventure and the danger of climbing some of these large faces. The scaling of the major rock faces of Half Dome and El Capitan took place in the mid-50s, and since then, um, every major rock wall in Yosemite has been climbed, and thousands of climbers come to Yosemite each year. Yosemite is sometimes called the center of the climbing universe, and that may seem pretentious, but it's actually quite true. If you stand in El Capitan's meadow, known as El Cap Meadow, uh, watching the climbers, the tiny specks of climbers move up the wall, you'll be surrounded at any point during your stay with international climbers who have come specifically to climb El Capitan or any a number of the rock faces in the valley. It really is an international community that descends upon this valley during certain times of the year, and it's, it's quite an interesting experience. In the 1960s, rock climbing moved into a new era with its own celebrities and rivalries. Guys like Warren Harding and Royal Robbins, these guys were huge celebrities within the climbing community. These climbers took up residence either all or part of each year in a small walk-in campground known as Camp 4. In the 70s, climbing took a leap in technology and an achievement primarily thanks to a small but tight group known as the Stone Masters. This elite group of climbers devoted themselves to climbing and took the sport to a level of difficulty and achievement that was not previously thought possible. This group functioned as a community. It had a de facto leader. Uh, they had their own clothing styles. Uh, Jim Bridwell, who was a climber from the 60s who transitioned in the 70s, was kind of the elder statesman, and they looked to him as a, a leader of sorts. Their clothing styles were very distinctive. They would wear white painter's pants. They would wear flowered shirts. They would wear headbands or anything that they felt looked different and good for photographs. They had photographers that took pictures of them all the time, and there's a grand history of the photography of that time. They also brought a general reckless abandon that wasn't accessible to the average climber. Most people were climbing on weekends, and they were going to their jobs Monday through Friday. But these guys were devoted. They spent all their time in Yosemite and did nothing but climb. Now, communities like this aren't uncommon. Surfers and motorcycle clubs, skateboarders, or even Boy Scouts all share characteristics with the Stone Masters. Certainly some of the Stone Masters were involved in the collection and transportation of the weed from Dope Lake, but they weren't alone and they weren't maybe even perhaps the largest beneficiaries of the discovery. They were celebrities, so it's easy to point to a few names and say they were leading the way. But I'm not prepared to be so emphatic about that. This is the point of the story where I'll say that naming the names of the people involved is not my goal or responsibility. I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm a storyteller. And this story is an amazing one, but it happened over 40 years ago. So many of the people involved are elder statesmen in their own communities now. Um, they're not the people they were 40 years ago, and some are not interested in remembering or are proud of their involvement in the story. The statute of limitations on any criminal charges ran out around 1982, but really the statute of limitations on someone's personal reputation is, I, I would say, infinite. I'll report certain names have been put forth in public records, but I'll protect my contacts as well as the sources of my research. But trust me, There'll be no fabrication of the facts. This story is crazy. Pilot paranoia, Mexican landing strips, a strange route to Idaho, a secret black book, a man in a suit, professional athletes, 
miles of hiking with burlap sacks of fuel-soaked weed, all this and more in the coming episodes of the High Adventure Podcast as we cover the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. High Adventure Podcast is produced by Accidental Productions. Follow High Adventure on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you at the crash site.